Welcome to the Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Forecasting Impact. Thank you for taking time, for listening to us, uh, for growing, and for learning. My name is Maddie. I'm a lecturer in data science at the University of Queensland, and today I'll be your host. And this is Sharid, your co-host of today. I'm a senior postdoc at the University of Ghent in Belgium, and I specialize in bringing behavioral science, my psychology background, to the world of forecasting. Um, today we have an amazing guest, um, uh, Trevor Sidery. Trevor Sidery uh, holds a PhD in mathematics from University of Southampton. He has worked several years as postdoc and teaching fellow at Sabanji University in Turkey and University of Birmingham in the UK. Trevor does research in probability theory, applied mathematics, and fluid dynamics. He's currently a lead data scientist at Tesco and, of course, a forecasting uh, scientist. Uh, welcome to the show, Trevor. Hi. Uh, good to be here. Uh, it's awesome to have you. Um, so when I was looking at your uh, profile, actually, Sarah was uh, looking at your profile and prepared uh, your bio for us. <laughs> uh, we noticed that you have moved from mathematics and astronomy and physics, and then you know you have spent a few years in uh, university doing postdoc as a teaching fellow, working um, in, in academia, and now as a lead data scientist at Tesco. So we are all keen to hear your story. Uh, where do you start, and how did you end up here? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as, as you say, I was uh, started at um, Southampton doing um, astrophysics, I guess, in, in the maths department, um, and that was mostly kind of concentrated on fluid dynamics um, in well inside of superfluids inside neutron stars, which is obviously a bit different to forecasting. Um, <coughs> and then um, just kind of, I guess, then I was looking for jobs. Um, and um, as I found, um, the first the thing that came up um, was the thing um, postdoc in Turkey, um, and that was um, very similar to my PhD. So that was kind of how I ended up um, moving across there. And I'd heard of the person I'd be working for, um, and so that seemed like a good opportunity to continue my studies and and research um, out there. Uh, still, again, doing flu fluid dynamics. Um, very much at the time concentrating on um, a kind of an ana um, analytical approach so not not kind of going and taking big computer simulations but actually um, can I simplify the system enough that I can really kind of understand the nuts and bolts of what's going on and so really shrinking down kind of the fluid dynamic um, equations down to something that we could get um, useful information out that we could then see can we apply these insights into um, what we actually observe from uh, telescopes. Uh, but while I was in uh, Turkey, I actually, I'd already always kind of dealt, um, delved a little bit into programming stuff. Um, and while actually my PhD had nothing to do with programming in it at all, yeah. um, I thought, 
well, I'm a postdoc. There's, um, I'm at a university. There's some uh, undergraduate courses going along. So actually, I went and attended some of the um, programming courses there. So that's kind of how I get into um, mm. at least a more formal way of doing some programming, which was helpful later on. Um, and then um, once that had finished um, at Sabanji University, um, I was looking for jobs for, for a little while. Um, nothing had come up for about, so I had about six months where I was kind of looking around, trying to work out. I was applying both to um, universities um, and also to industry, just trying to see what was out there, what, what could be next. Um, and at the same time was kind of doing a bit more programming and, you know, kind of side projects and, and that sort of thing to keep myself, um, I guess, sane while I was looking for jobs. Yeah. Um, and then that finally ended up with me getting the job at Birmingham Uni, which was um, about looking at trying to detect um, gravitational waves, something called gravitational waves, um, from um, basically using some detectors. Um, and so that was much more down the signal processing line. Yeah. Uh, I guess that the connection from my more previous jobs through. was that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Looks like um, well, the yeah. yeah, the connection to my previous jobs was very much um, that the sources they were looking for were neutron stars and black holes, which was kind of along the, the astrophysics side of things. But then, as you say, it's kind of going more into time series and signal processing. And yeah. um, in, in that case, was very much uh, parameter estimation. So kind of uh, like your Bayesian um, probability theory and sort of yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and trying to work out not just do we detect something, which at that time, they hadn't been detected at all. So this was very much, can we even detect anything at all? But once we have detected them, can we understand, you know, the masses of these objects and things? But certainly that's how I got into kind of the area of time series and, and all of that. Um, and then um, I did a little bit of um, like one year of teaching um, at Birmingham Uni still while I was, again, kind of, um, it was always knew it was a temporary position of just looking, um, gave me a bit more time to look for other jobs and finish off a few um, bits and pieces uh, with the research while I was looking around. Um, and then again, I did exactly the same I had before. So I was applying both for academic jobs and for industry and seeing what came up. Um, and then I took um, an interview at Tesco, which mm. if I'm honest at the time, it was kind of a bit, um, more going along for interview practice than anything else yeah. um, at the time. But then actually going and talking to the group and finding out that um, that retail actually had lots of interesting problems to solve. Um, they wanted to do um, uh, that. They were actually, it turned out themselves looking for somebody um, from an era like astrophysics where, you know, there's kind of, lots of data that you have to deal with um, maybe a bit of a different perspective um, yeah. from the people that were currently in the role yeah um, and then yeah so having seen that the job actually looked interesting um, which kind of surprised me at the time um, then I ended up coming to Tesco mm. and that was now eight years ago mm. awesome. so I've been at yeah so I've been at Tesco for eight years um, and then that wasn't directly into a forecasting role. So I would say that for the first 
a few years I was doing kind of quite a lot of um, different projects um, within Tesco. So some kind of things like price recommendation, um, some some bits and pieces um, kind of ar- around the business, basically. Um, and then they kind of ended up with this uh, bit of an opening where uh, one of my colleagues had, had almost as a, a little bit of a side project had decided to do a, a small forecasting project. Um, and so they built something um, quite nice using um, actually managing to implement some kind of Bayesian statistics type stuff, um, but a quite a small scale. Um, and then um, he, and then I kind of, I was like, I noticed if you like that that actually fitted quite well with what I'd done in the past as well. Um, and then he left. And so I kind of, there was, a, there was a reasonable opening for me to kind of step in and look after what he'd been doing. Um, but then also, um, I would say that's kind of the point at which within data science itself, we started doing a lot um, larger forecasting projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of shifted from being a general data scientist to actually, um, over the years, kind of ended up leading the area of forecasting within data science. So yeah. that's kind of how, how, how I got there. A bit, bit of a long and winding journey. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an amazing journey. I mean, I'm always surprised at how diverse our audience here on the podcast is and how, how diverse the backgrounds are from the people in the forecasting community. But I think we can be fairly sure that we've never had an astrophysicist on <laughs> on our podcast. That's yeah. amazing. And I wouldn't have seen, you've explained it clearly, but I wouldn't have seen the link. Like, how do you go from astrophysics to, to forecasting? But so it's it's all about handling big data, uh, handling lots of data. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It seems like um, you can't really forecast your career where, where it's <laughs> you know there's just like this random process like little little things that happens like a chain and then you end up somewhere uh, which is uh, which could be quite different uh, but really interesting story. <laughs> um, so um, as a lead data scientist um, in Tesco. Um, so, um, well, of course, uh, for retail, we do have a lot of forecasting. I would imagine millions of SKUs. Um, so what do you do? Could you, could you walk us a little bit uh, through the process of forecasting over there uh, and uh, tell us about your role and how do you, uh, how do you generate basically forecast? I think it would be sure. interesting for our um, audiences. As a lead data scientist, I guess the idea is to be kind of trying to push the area of forecasting, making sure that um, Tesco is, um, I guess, involved in in making good forecasts and making sure that we're, you know, leading edge and, and all, all of that kind of stuff of trying to make sure that we're um, doing what needs to be done. Um, and at the same time, very much uh, trying to work out what are those requirements for the business to what, what forecast do we need to be making? Um, and and how all those things kind of fit together. Um, so I guess day to day, you have to you know speak to the business and work out and kind of keep them as you make forecasts um, and as you make improvements to your forecasts. It's kind of bringing them very much along with that journey. It becomes very important, um, especially when you're kind of starting up a new project um, where people, I guess the 
the tendency is for people to think, okay, you just you go away and bring me some forecasts. Whereas I guess we all know that actually it, it's much more a two-way thing where the the business will actually have things that they think that they find really important um, that can help um, us as data scientists understand um, what probably is important in terms of that may just be types of data. Um, so um, there will be some people for whom promotions are very important and you need to make sure that promotions are part of your data. For others, it may be, um, I don't know, the weather or or some things you didn't think about like paydays or, you know, and all of these types of things. And each different forecasting problem will have a different list of things that they, they find are important. And the business will pretty much know what, what things they've done in the past because as, as a data scientist you're kind of coming in usually not in a blank slate but almost there is a process there already um people have to kind of make a forecast themselves because they need to run the business um but they would like that for that process to be um more robust more automated um and um maybe that they also have time to be thinking about other things rather than the basic forecast they'd prefer to be doing you know analytics and scenario planning for example mm. um so very much that that discussion part um yeah and so um i would say, yeah that's that's usually where the where these things start right is <laughs> is that discussion with the business of trying to make a decent yeah, forecast starting point of it yeah so You've got okay a, a few projects going on. Um, the way we actually work is to have um, within data science a single group that is looking after forecasting. Um, mostly, I would well that's for projects which are like forecast focused. I would say, yeah. um, and so then we have to kind of prioritize uh, the work we need to do between all those projects, um, and at the same time trying to make sure that we're setting aside time for actual development of if you like the underlying um framework of whatever we're working on <clears throat> so rather than trying to make each forecasting project that comes up you don't want to build a completely new solution you want to have um a a kind of mostly ready-made solution that you can then adjust to your specific forecasting problem um, and then of course that that thing itself is going to need um, its own development and so balancing yeah. those things and making sure you're spending you know time towards the strategic as well as the kind of the tactical project yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah so what you do sounds it's, it's it all sounds very technical to me because i don't know anything about it um so i'm mostly interested in in the judgment part in forecasting and you mentioned that um, there's uh, promotions. I'm just wondering, do you still uh, do you have models that forecast the promotions or is there still a lot of judgment involved in that, like for exceptional situations or? Um, it very much depends on timescales. So if you have short timescales, then um, the promotions will have been locked into a system somewhere. If you if your forecasting is at much longer timescales, then that's going to be much more of a work in progress from from people. Um, and mm. so I guess the, the level at which you have information is is going to be different at different timescales, basically. Yeah, I see. Uh, so the um, 
just just a bit technical question, but of course you can reveal as much as you're allowed to. <laughs> the, yeah, sure. Uh, I would imagine you have millions of products in uh, SKUs, basically for mm -hmm. Tesco. Um, do you use kind of statistical models, machine learning models? And if you can say, could you say, well, what, what type of models are you using and uh, sure. how it works, how, how much data you give into it? And what's the forecasting horizon you have? If you could walk us a little bit through the details of it, that would be great. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll probably keep it a, a little bit high level just, um, but the, I would say, so with, within, uh, Tesco, there are there is a team that very much looks after supply chain. So I think when people think of retail, the first th the thing they're going to think of is the supply chain. So you know, you, I need to get product A into store A tomorrow. How much of that product do I need there? And doing demand forecasting. Um, now there's a dedicated team that looks after that stuff, and that is um, you know very. I guess the, the established team. Um, for data science, we kind of do a lot of forecasting elsewhere around the business. So not that kind of, so for supply chain, you've, that, that's exactly where you've got your millions of forecasts because you know you store products level um, over the next you know few weeks or whatever. Um, for us, we're often worried about actually longer term forecasts with not so many forecasts. Um, so maybe I'm I'm worried about, um, for instance, what do I expect my sales to be over the next year? Um, so which helps me do things like planning payroll in stores. So how many people do I need actually working in the store? Um, or target setting. So, you know, there will always be, within a business, it's very useful to have um, targets that you're setting so that people can balance their efforts. So for a, a good you example, target, be, setting. target setting for what? Yeah. So a, a good example would be, um, people that are actually running promotions and things, they in theory can quite easily change a set of levers, um, where their levers are, I want sales as in sales quantity the number of things i'm selling because that um helps me know that many customers are buying my products yeah and i'm 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 making sure that i have um i'm i'm selling what customers want i can um also have sales value so what's what's the value of the product i'm selling um and what's the profit i'm making on those things these are not forecasts. These are targets. Is is that right? Or well, so it, it's it's just an example. So to yeah. set a target, you you need to have a baseline of a forecast of okay, this is what I'm expecting. Yeah. Okay. Um, to happen given my current situation. Yeah. Um, then from that point, that's a starting place where people will kind of make some tweaks to make sure that. Um, they can do target setting, but realistic ones because they're based off a forecast. And yeah. then those become things that people can then, um, you know, run their operations from because they have something to aim for. Yeah. Just as an, another example of, of where forecasts are yeah. used in a retail business. Yeah, yeah, I can see. Um, the uh, talking about the forecasting, uh, like not not a longer term one, but basically more operational. Um, mm -hmm. 
you, I would imagine you use hierarchical forecasting, like basically for different locations and different stores that you have. You um, mostly that's not what is required. Um, we so again, one of the projects that we work on. Um, is to do so for payroll for this kind of short-term forecast it's an operational forecast you need to actually make sure that you've got payroll coming into the stores um, and at the same time so you have so Tesco has uh, three and a half thousand stores approximately in the UK mm-hmm. um, so you know that, that's, that's, that's sort of the level of forecast you need but those also need to align with um, the kind of a product level forecast because they mm-hmm. you don't want different views of the business from you don't want say yeah, the they're... people looking after stores to have one view of the business and the people looking after products to have a different view mm-hmm. and then the people looking after a kind of a centralized forecast of you know more strategic version um so those things all have to align so yeah. there's a kind of you have to do some alignment um which i mean is is a kind of yeah, um, I, I guess yeah. a basic version of your or hierarchical forecasting yeah, yeah. Yeah. and surely you can go further than that yeah. um I guess the just w- whether it's always necessary or not is 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 the question yeah yeah interesting um so if well typical uh, problems in 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 um, retail well for for big retailers like Tesco I would think uh, I would imagine like um I don't know hundred thousands of SKUs or uh, a large number of SKUs. Yeah, about. Do you have any computational issue? Like, uh... (laughs) sure, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, and and that also, I mean, the computational issues also um, kind of tell you which methods you can use as well. Yeah. Um, So, for example, it's very easy to parallelize. a bunch of forecasting when the forecasts don't have relationships between each other. Um, yeah. And if you do want to have relationships between them, you kind of have to be very careful about how you do that so that you can still be running that number of forecasts, you know, every day or or depending on the forecast every week or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, it, there's a tendency towards your more statistical versions of forecasting just because, um, it's much easier to scale, basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it seems like there are quite a few different, um, well, issues and things that uh, are quite a few different types of forecasts that actually you need to make in, in, in the retail business context. And yeah. they, w- what are some of the challenges that you have you have encountered, basically, in, in different forecasts that you generate in typical in a typical day, what are some sorts of challenges you have, or maybe for longer uh, forecasting, what are the challenges you have? Sure. <clears throat> um, I mean, so opera- operationalization is actually um, as a massive one. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably <laughs> for 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 the for the half of the people on the on, that listen to this podcast from the. Um, kind of coming from the academic side maybe not the most interesting yeah. but it's one of those things it's one of those things that's a sad fact of our our reality yeah, i think right? it is it's very difficult of... and it's a very important part of it like everything on the paper uh, well 
Yeah, it looks nice and uh, beautiful, but once you want to implement it, uh, operationalize it, that's that's a big challenge. And not everything is actually doable. Some of them yeah. make sense and some of them not. But uh, I think uh, people would be really interested to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I think, I guess one thing is like to come up with something that works quite, it can take a reasonably short amount of time where, you know, short might be still months or half a year or something. But then the fact is you need to make sure that doesn't break. Um, and so you effectively end up spending quite a lot of time just making sure that you don't just have a solution that works, but have a has a solution which always runs because yeah, it's operational. Yeah. Um, and so, and then you, then the challenge becomes you can do that, and you know, particularly if you get some decent um, engineers who can help help you set this up, and you can work together. Um, actually, one thing we found very useful is having like there to be a very close partnership between engineers and data scientists where data scientists are kind of learning quite a um, good uh, programming techniques and stuff by sitting next to the, you know, effectively sitting next to the engineers um, <clears throat> so that they can in increase their ability to write production code, but then, you know, just helps things tick along. Mm -hmm. um, but then, um, I guess once you've built something, you want to keep making sure that you can modify it and iterate it and make sure it's better. Um, and so then part of the, I guess, the difficulty of operate, of, of making production systems is to make sure that you don't just make a thing that works, but make a thing that you can continue to improve on and make work mm -hmm. in the future, yeah. um, especially as kind of new methodologies come about, um, you know, making sure that you have the ability to trial both statistical models and um, more machine learning models together so that um, you can, you know, you can trial them against each other or or, or whatever else you need to do. Um, so that becomes quite a big challenge. Um, and then, of course, there's the challenges of from the uh, kind of the judgmental side, but also feedback. So what you want to make sure is that um, I think what we've almost found is that unless the business has the ability to make judgmental adjustments to some extent, they don't want your model um, because you're, you're going from a situation where they are the experts to, okay, we're going to automate something and that's going to make an improvement, but actually there are, they need, they are finally, they are the people that are finally responsible for the forecast. Yeah. Uh, not not me. It's because I'm making a nice automated solution that they're being handed, and then they have to actually say, okay, this is the forecast I'm happy with. Might so they need to have ownership. the <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so then they they have to have some ability to make adjustments, but then you want to make sure that there's a automated feedback mechanism so that you can see which adjustments are working or mm -hmm. or sometimes just is is has something strange happened to the forecast itself to make sure that um like if if this thing is running each week you want um flags to come up if actually say the the model suddenly becomes very volatile or um and 
you know, to make sure that they have trust in the system as well. So that those are kind of big challenges that come along. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned trust there. And, and I think one of the big challenges as well is the acceptability of things like machine learning, because to, you know, the people who are not the coders, who are not the analysts, it may seem like sort of a black box, um, like what is it taken into account? And that may, you know, lead to more judgment. Um, so how does that work within within Tesco? Do you um, go into conversation with the people who use the forecast to explain what's behind the model uh, to, to increase acceptability, to increase trust? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, always with data science, it's important to make sure that you're kind of building it hand in hand with them. Is there's, You don't just kind of go away for three or six months and come back and say, here's your solution. But almost weekly to say this is the improvement we're making this is why we're making it and to bring them along that journey so, so that helps a lot um i think particularly for forecasting um it helps to i think also doing the kind of the more statistical models can help as well because they're kind of they're slightly easier to see what's going on and actually they're easier to diagnose as well if something does go off you can kind of delve into what's going on um and, and explain it to the business as well okay yes we had this issue we know why this issue happened here and, and then you can and fix that um so yeah it's very much a kind of a continuous dialogue um and and then and then of course you have the uh the the thing which you don't always think about um at the beginning but always needs to be thought about at the beginning is documentation so they're just you know yeah it's a silly thing but really again yeah. yeah definitely yeah but i'm i'm very happy to hear that it's that that it's in dialogue because sometimes people say you know machine learning it's it, it's the future but what's the value of having half a percent or one percent more accuracy if people don't understand it and therefore don't use it or they abuse it in the sense that they're making unnecessary judgmental adjustments be just because they don't know what's going on so it's it's great to hear that you develop these in cooperation with those who will use the forecast yeah sure and then i one of the other things you always make sure you set up at the beginning of the project is to agree the metrics you're going to use with the uh, business um so sometimes this means you're maybe not your final metric that you're presenting is maybe not the one that you um would want to um, score the model on it was you're doing model development um, that that might happen but to say okay we're going to agree for instance MAPE um, we all know that there's problems with it but at the same time the business is something very easy for the business to understand um, and so just being able to say okay we've done this method that you understood um, maybe it was started off with a simpler method that everybody was happy with. We've tried this other thing, which is a bit more complicated, maybe slightly less understandable, but we can now show that the metrics have got better. Um, and so then, then they can sign off the new change, but you, you can kind of, you can at least even, even if all the details of exactly what you're doing with the methods become a little bit hidden over time, you've kind of, you're still taking people along that journey. Yeah, definitely. Um, so definitely, the operationalization is one of the one of one of the big challenges. Um, well, we don't encounter that in academia as much. Um, well, basically, well, I, in my postdoc, I worked on a project that we need we needed to actually do it. Like I was working on a project for wind forecasting, 
energy forecasting, price forecasting, basically for electricity. And we had to develop this model and then implement it in practice and test it in, on, on site and see how it goes. So I kind of went through the process to see, you know, uh, there is a big, big effort that is required really for operationalization and not everything is really um, uh, doable. And of course, there are things that you don't anticipate, but you go through the process and, oh, I didn't think about this part. So you have to kind of, you know, back and forth, we'll work on that to improve it. So there are, for sure, there are differences. Um, mm -hmm. So um, we're talking about academia and industry and some, some some differences, and you have made a leap from academia to industry. I don't know if you're yeah. still doing a lot of research or not, but um, um, I think it would be really good to, to have um, you know to, to have your thoughts on this and do, do, what are the connections that you see and what are the things that you uh, uh, you see that possibly we can work on to, to improve the academy and industry connection um, um, well in terms of retail forecasting and also in general forecasting. Yeah, sure. Um, I think. So I was thinking about this. The, I guess there's a little bit on 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 both sides. So from from the business side, I, I would say the the biggest thing for is just usually just willingness. Um, so at the moment, I would say things like data science um, and technology and all of this kind of thing are um, much more a focus, um, which is very helpful at the moment. Um, in business um, and so this idea that actually you know we should be spending time trying to make sure that we're reaching out to um, academia and, and, and understand and make sure that what we're implementing is being improved um, mm -hmm. I think there can be some a bit as data science teams are growing um, and especially as you get data often data science teams are kind of coming out of people that had at least some amount of um, academic background, um, may maybe not always a couple of postdocs, but pos quite often maybe a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess there's going to be then some willingness for to actually engage with academia because it's also familiar, right? <laughs> that helps. <laughs> um, I think from a business side, the thing that we find very um, helpful is kind of those new points of view but particularly expertise so how mm -hmm. can we kind of go to uh, people working in academia and kind of work out what bits of their expertise and, and have that have that talk about um, you know new methods in forecasting um, or <clears throat> sometimes even slightly older methods in forecasting but how should I implement that in a correct way <laughs> yeah. um, that, that that makes mathematical sense? Um, yeah, so that's really, so this I guess this can happen in a number of ways. Um, we've found what we've found quite useful has been uh, PhD internships. So this would mm. be where nice. say PhD students um, take out three months towards the end of their PhDs. Get a bit of experience working in an industry if that just to try it out, um, but at the same time we um, get to 
give a project to somebody who's actually got quite a bit of experience in something. Um, like it's it's quite a lot harder with say a master's project um, because I guess that that student sort of hasn't gained the expertise. They they may be a very good student, but they they're not sort of bringing in that extra expertise. So that, that becomes a bit harder. Not not impossible to 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 be useful, but it is much harder than say um, at the PhD level. Um, and then just engaging with um, having the um, ability to talk to and chat with um, lecturers and professors and um, about about their work is very valuable. Um, I guess from the academic side, then the thing you probably want most is our data, <laughs> um, yeah. so that so that you can you know you, you have your ideas and actually the ability to try things on in in scale or in practice and um, and and do that. Um, and so I guess it's about yeah that that willingness to kind of come together and work out what our mutual interests are um, is. Is, is is probably the main thing yeah those are some concrete nice examples in practice exactly what are the things that could be done like from both sides and i think well some of them are well basically you know, phd internship and also the other uh, things that you mentioned they're they're already in practice and, and uh, people practicing it. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, there is definitely room to improve upon that. And yeah, thanks for, for, for sharing your thoughts. They're really, really practical and nice examples. Um, yeah, I think w one more comment I had uh, uh, was um, when, I guess there's also th this um, kind of, how do you propose projects in the first place? You know, how, yeah. how do you get this interaction going? Um, and I think that's, uh, like the I, I have to say within the the forecasting arena it, it's felt pretty good um but yeah. i guess it's just as a comment it's um you kind of when you as as somebody from business coming and talking to um universities you kind of get different levels of um expectation of interaction so you sort of go all the way from a very um okay what mathematical problem do you have for us to solve which is kind of which for, for us is like um, we, we need a bit more discussion of that. Then you've kind of got the next level of, okay, here's our expertise. How does that fit with your expertise? And then finally, the, the place that really, that really works is where there really is interest in um, doing a very practical project, you know, actually where you are using our data and applying methods to, to our data. Um, and, and using that in practice and kind of having a bit more of a dialogue as um, what projects do you both find interesting, but we mm. also find useful. That, that, that's really where, where, where this, you know, where, where we're very happy to engage. Whereas if you just sort of say, what maths problem do you want us to solve? Then yeah, it's yeah. kind of, that's not There's really not what math. we need. <laughs> <laughs> not many mathematical problems there. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are, there, yeah, there yeah, are many definitely. mathematical problems, but it's just, it, it's it's a hard starting place. Is, yeah, is what I, would I understand. Say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or uh, everything is math, but I mean, yeah, it, it's it just have a different nature uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um. So we're gonna move on to the last part of our conversation. Um. So where we have where we ask uh, you know quick questions. Uh, two quick questions that we have. Okay. So first is um. Uh, what's your recommended must must read book or paper in forecasting? Uh, that could be of uh, interest for our audiences. Sure. Um, I think for me, it's 
probably the the thing that I find most useful are those papers that are kind of entry points. Um, so I guess I I have time to research and and find out what's going on, but um, I think it's very easy to forget um, how difficult it is to get into a new area, even those even if they're a new area within forecasting, the, the amount of effort you need to do that. So the kind of overview papers where you get to see these are things that have worked um, and and therefore that kind of gives me an access point of, um, okay, yeah, that's something that is actually worth my time really trying to delve into. Um, I, so for example, so my, I guess the big example for me would be the, the M competitions. Um, just because they, they're done something in practice. A lot of people have tried a lot of methods. These are methods that seem to work um, and therefore they're, they're naturally going to be more interesting to me of something, okay, those are worth my time. And then then maybe I can go into kind of the 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 paper that actually introduced the methodology and go into it yeah. a bit further, but kind of those access points are very useful. Completely irrelevant, definitely, M5. Um, and um, Sherry, do you want to add? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, then it's time for my question. And it's a bit more of an informal one, actually, to round up. Okay. Um, so we've heard you talk a lot about work and you're very passionate, but what do you do to relax after a hard week's work? What do you do in the weekends? Don't um, say work more. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, well, at the moment, if, um, I guess, um, well, I've, I've just um, I've just become a father, so who knows what's going to happen with, with all my relaxation time from now on. But uh, yes. my... <laughs> um uh, my hobbies that that help me unwind I, I like playing a lot of table tennis um that's something that yeah. kind of uh, i guess is a good good, good way to relax or de-stress um and then playing the piano as well as another big hobby of mine i kind of enjoy both of those things a lot nice. okay well that's nice so you're very creative as well and sporty and analytical you've got many talents and father now <laughs> and father yeah. yes yes congratulations on that yeah, congratulations. but um yeah <laughs> that will yeah. be an exciting time yeah um yeah. so trevor um thank you so much for being on our podcast and it was a very interesting talk um i mean a lot of it for me was was like you very technical but you under you explain it so well that i could actually follow which makes me feel better about me um so thank you for for being here for making time for us um yeah it's a pleasure yeah yeah thank you so much for being here um uh, thank you for the insightful conversations and yeah i uh, hope to see you in oxford yes indeed <laughs> I, will, I will see you there yeah thank okay. you everybody for listening right. and uh, looking forward to see you next time Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.